Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 112 of the Retrospectors podcast, Metal Gear Solid 2. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, James Sterlings. James, this has to be the fastest turnaround for a sequel we've ever done. Uh, normally, when we do our sequel episodes, we have a nice big gap in between them. But a mere two episodes ago, we did Metal Gear Solid 1, and we're back for Metal Gear Solid 2. How are you feeling about returning to uh, the world of Metal Gear Solid? I'm actually so excited for this episode. I think Metal Gear Solid 2 is like one of those wanky reviewers' dreams of a game, right? Like, we are going to talk about this game for hours on hours of, you know, just complete nonsense. Uh, it's going to be great. Um, like, this, I think of this kind of game in the same category as Majora's Mask, right? It's just like the perfect game to do you know, a two-hour discussion on all of the little intricate details about the story and the gameplay. Um, and it is, you know, another game in one of my favorite series of all time. So, you know, absolutely excited for this. Yeah, I was kind of interested in covering this game quite quickly, uh, even before we played Metal Gear Solid 1. But after finishing it, it became almost an obsession, a compulsion for me uh, for two main reasons. And the first is that I did not enjoy Metal Gear Solid 1. I thought in a lot of ways its gameplay has aged extremely poorly. Um, and even though the story is solid, I think it also has a lot of flaws. Solid? <laughs> I was accidental, I swear. Uh, and I was I was wondering uh, if Metal Gear Solid 2 was a closer actualization of what I thought Metal Gear Solid 1 would be. The other thing is that after playing the game, and I was suspecting this, but it's even truer after finishing it, I think that there's a lot of rumination on the nature of sequels with Metal Gear Solid 2. And I think that playing them back to back, or at least fairly close together, gives you a more interesting perspective on both than if you do, you know, kind of treat them independently or if you don't link them as closely together. Mm. So I think that if there were ever two games from the same series with you know similar kind of gameplay that we play close together metal gear solid one and two are definitely some of the best titles to try yeah they're very very closely interlinked games and like plane two definitely gives you a lot of alternate you know uh some alternate viewpoints on the events of one which i thought are just really fantastic um the last time i played through two actually was also right after i played through one so it's very nostalgic for me to go back and you know play the series and i'm hoping we'll do three as well at some point yeah next episode <laughs> <laughs> next episode i but i completely agree that uh it makes a great contrast to the first game and even though i love the first game it does have its flaws and you know this game also has some flaws but i think they're very different in a lot of ways but at uh, the very least, I think this game has one of the most fascinating stories to, like, you know, have as the basis for your discussion. And uh, so you've played the game through once before or twice before? Once before. Okay. Played it through with a friend on the couch, and we took turns, and, man, there was a couple of boss fights that took us, like, all day to beat because we were going for um the like we hadn't played the game before but we were going for obviously going for using only the knockout pistol mm. uh, which made a lot of the boss fights take <laughs> a lot longer <laughs> and um as for me i've never actually played this game to completion um i've played the starting tanker mission and a little bit of the uh 
little bit of the big shell uh things back when uh that collection first released but i never got very far not because i thought the game was bad i just kind of faded away from it um i was pretty spoiled on the story though I, because i've played every other Metal Gear solid series i was one of those people who i need to understand stories like this so i spend ages watching videos and reading through wikis so this game has some opinions about that um not that it directly says them but uh i think if you uh play metal gear solid 2 and then you look up what the ending meant there's a bit of irony there right? well it's also incomplete because i don't think just looking up a wikipedia entry fully yeah. is the same as experiencing the story um, in its whole like playing the game from start to finish is very different from even watching a video of the game from start to finish in many ways experience it is important um so but i had many of the major plot beats spoiled but i don't think that actually took away from the impact of some of these twists and turns just because of how uh substantial those twists and turns are oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh so We'll get into the discussion in just a moment, but first of all, we'll introduce ourselves for those who have never listened to us before. James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast, and what we do each and every three weeks is we play through a classic, uh, whether it's a cult classic or a widely beloved game of the past, with the intention of determining if that game has truly stood the test of time and is worth your time to play today. Critically, this is not a nostalgia podcast. We're not here to... Uh, I guess dwell on our positive feelings of the game that we played when we were younger or understand and appreciate the historical value of the game we're simply doing a review of the game as if it had been released today in many ways this is a harsh standard of criticism because we're not accounting for you know the technological leaps and bounds that have been made over the last 20 25 30 years but we found over the course of the show that many games are brilliant in some ways because of the technological limitations because of the different design philosophy that that was a lot more rough than modern gaming and i think that video games as an art form are best appreciated irrespective of the time period in which they're released you can enjoy games or not enjoy games regardless of what time period they're released in essentially i should mention you can find all of our content on our website which is rspodcast.net so Metal Gear Solid 2, what we're going to do is we're going to do a brief introduction of the game and we'll spoil the first 15% uh, or so in this introduction and then we're going to go straight into the story full spoilers. We're not going to spoil the entirety of the story. There are Metal Gear Solid 2 is a game of layers. There are layers and layers of spoilers, but we will be talking about the first, I'd say, 75 to 80% of the game with the major 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 twists and turns left for a discussion post gameplay so choose your level of spoilers skip ahead to where you want to go but it's a very difficult game to talk about completely free of spoilers because the stuff on display here is quite heavy and complicated it's going to be hard to talk about it with none. so metal gear solid 2 it's a stealth action game and the second entry in the mainline 3d metal gear solid series it is first released for the playstation 2 in 2001 and it directly continues the story of the first game. So when you first start playing this game, uh, the first chapter is set two years after the events of Shadow Moses and Metal Gear Solid 1. Otacon and Snake have splintered off into a two-person anti-Metal Gear group after the technology to build them has spread across the globe. 
You play as Snake as he lands on a tanker controlled by the U.S. Marines to try to get evidence of the U.S. Marines' Metal Gear Ray, a Metal Gear that is designed to destroy other Metal Gears. I'm going to be saying Metal Gear a lot, fair warning. So this section of the game comprises about, I don't know, 15% of the total game, and it acts as, this prologue almost acts as a tutorial. It is a meaty tutorial, like there's plenty of gameplay here, but this isn't the main chunk of playing the game and there's a pretty major difference as you uh, as you move to the second half so we have lots of story revelations here that i'm just going to skip over because otherwise i'd be explaining the story all day but basically we see that ocelot is still alive he's still manipulating events from the shadows and he eventually blows up the tanker with the support of some russian soldiers he steals the metal gear ray prototype and destroys the tanker that they're on, leaving Snake, many of the Marines, and even some of the Russian soldiers for dead. And that's the end of the prologue. We then get a skip to two years further in the future. Um, so two years after the events of the tanker incident, four years after the events of Shadow Moses. This has you playing as a completely new character, Raiden, who is a member of the new Foxhound, and he's in communication with the old Colonel, which is already a bit odd. You've been called into action despite having no real-world military experience, just countless hours in virtual reality. It's all the more interesting because uh, Metal Gear Solid had a kind of a sub-game release called Metal Gear Solid VR Missions. So you can almost imagine that Raiden has been playing through the VR missions present in that game. He even says at one point that he played through the events of Shadow Moses entirely in VR. Um, in preparation, you know, for training for this big upcoming mission. Yeah, and I've seen theories that the Metal Gear Solid, the Twin Snakes, is that mission. Because it's not a perfect recreation of what happened in the original. It's something of a reimagining, which is, uh, I think, fits the lore quite well. So the situation that Raiden gets dropped into is that terrorists have captured a facility called Big Shell, an environmental cleanup station that was constructed in the wake of the oil spill that occurred when that tanker sunk from Snake's previous mission. So we've got a continuous thread from that um, tanker incident that occurred two years ago. The terrorist group that's taking control of Big Shell is called Dead Cell. And in addition to taking control, they've taken the President of the United States and a bunch of other people hostages. They're demanding $100 billion, something absurd, or they'll blow up the plant and kill all the hostages. It's your job to stop them and rescue the hostages. So that's a basic story setup. Um, we're now officially going to head into the secondary layer of Metal Gear Solid's story and spoilers. So if you want to go mostly spoiler-free, you should just skip ahead to gameplay. Um, we're not going to be spoiling everything here. We're just going to be spoiling, I guess, the meat and potatoes of the storyline as you're exposed to it to begin with. And we'll get into the heavy story stuff a little bit later. So, James, where I want to start with our discussion is that I think that this is particularly interesting um, coming from just playing Metal Gear Solid 1 quite recently. This game, almost immediately as you're taking control of Raiden, feels like a direct retread of Metal Gear Solid 1, almost bordering on a on a you know, re-inspired remake of what the first game had going for it. You're a lone person, you come into the uh, big shell underwater, you're wearing the same 
breathing apparatus that Snake is. There's a terrorist organization. They've taken control of a facility. You haven't been given all the information regarding the facility. There's a bunch of kooky characters that have taken control. How did you feel about this retread, this reintroduction of what appears to be almost an identical structure to Metal Gear Solid? Well, as a sequel, it kind of feels very fitting, actually, because to me, as a fan of the first game and heads up, like when I experienced Metal Gear Solid 2 for the first time, I was already fairly aware of a lot of the, you know, some of the story elements that were going on. So I never really came into this game completely blind, but I had like, I didn't know everything. And coming back into it, I actually remember on the first time playing through it, that none of the stuff really stuck out to me as being odd or sinister or anything like that. It kind of just felt natural um, as a another game, another entry in the franchise. Like, that's kind of what you would expect, right? It's another big terrorist incident, and you are playing a, a lone character entering a stealth mission into the incident. I think that's what they were kind of hoping the players would respond to this initial premise, a very, you know, taking everything at face value, because I definitely did on my first playthrough. It's very video gamey, isn't it? To have these yeah. kind of like introductory aspects, which are the same from game to game to game. Uh, it's not a common thing in other forms of storytelling necessarily. Like even something like James Bond will have different variations on a theme and Metal Gear Solid obviously draws pretty heavy from James Bond. But when you play different video games, you always have that tutorial bit or you always have a repeated set of incidents. Even something as simple as Sly Cooper will still have that same basic setup, that initial heist, uh, and you just take it, you know, as is. But I do believe Metal Gear Solid 2 does push it even further. One of the things that really stood out to me is how the patter and rhythm of dialogue was like exactly the same. There's even some voice lines, I think, that are just one-to-one, -one, like mm. copied between the games. Uh, even at the very beginning of the game, uh, the colonel refers to Raiden as Snake for a, a total of two minutes, yeah, before quickly discarding that as his code name and swapping to Raiden. And of course, the reason for that is that they've discovered that there is snakes already on the facility and they can't yes. have them both be codenamed Snake. Otherwise, they would have been perfectly happy to continue the pantomime, I think, with him as Snake for the entire mission. Um, yeah, and I think that as the game goes on, it becomes obvious that this is a very deliberate choice. I do think it's interesting that as the game continues, it becomes more and more obvious that there's this sense of repetition one of the, the an element from the first game is that snake starts discovering that things are not as they seem and that he's being lied to and the colonel and everyone refuses to tell him the truth and yes. literally exactly the same thing happens here like almost word for word raiden will discover some detail that makes sense and he basically gets told to shut up and focus on the mission instead and none of his questions get uh get answered from the colonel um i think this worked really well personally um particularly in the light of the revelations later in the game it's a very deliberate choice and it's one that's executed pretty much to perfection and it's an aspect of the story i really enjoy there's not so many one-to-one -one throwbacks that it's like it's boring hmm. there are like 
the fact that you fight a Harrier jet as opposed to the Hind D, for example, is like a like that's you know that's obviously mimicking the Hind D fight, right? But mm. it is still a unique and different gameplay element, and I think they do that kind of thing enough that these narrative throwbacks don't end up feeling like rote repetition, like you're just going through the same story. There's obviously something different happening here mm-hmm. um and the events are unfolding in different ways yes you are uh infiltrating a facility and you are fighting a team of maybe supernatural maybe not people but they are different people with different abilities their own motivations you know they each have their own you know sad backstory like the characters in metal gear solid one but they are different it's a meaningful story in its own right while also being able to draw attention to its kind of meta commentary on the nature of sequels and what it does with it and it achieves both like it 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 achieves the line um i do think that it does one of the consequences of this though is that it demands direct comparison um yeah in terms of critiquing it and i think that one of the ways this game is different and ultimately worse is with its bosses and its roster of enemy uh enemy henchmen leaders did you feel the same way absolutely um narratively i think they're weaker in some ways i think some ways some of them managed to be stronger i specifically think like uh, the leader of the terrorist group is actually stronger in his like motivations in this game, which we'll get into. Less confused. Um, the, yeah. uh, Liquid just spouted a bunch of endless nonsense. Um, I think Solidus has a philosophy. Like, a, yeah, a real yeah. philosophy and an actual like, like I agree with him on some points. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's what I think is the good mark of a villain. But before we get to that, I think. Like both Metal Gear Solid One and Three have a team of bosses that have thematic cohesion to them in some way. Like even something as simple as the Foxhound members all, you know, are some animal spirit, right? That they represent. Or the characters mm-hmm. in Metal Gear Solid Three are like an emotion, right? Like you've got the pain and the fear, etc. I think the Dead Cell characters mm-hmm. basically don't really have any kind of cohesion narratively, and it like feels very... They feel like a mishmash of characters that are together for who knows what reason, right? And we don't really actually get a reason in the first game either, but it didn't stick out as bad to me as it does here. They're also just shitty characters. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Vamp is yeah. a terrible character. Like... <laughs> Vamp is, I've seen him referred to as a bisexual Twilight vampire. Like, he kills people and does a cut across his chest. He can walk on water and run on walls and just a stupid character. Ocelot has a fantastic burn on Fortune. He says, you're such a, he says something to the effect of, you're so caught up in your own drama. Yeah, I was like, yes, thank you. That is completely true. I've been pissed off at this. She, I hate Fortune so much. I actually like her because of that. Like, I actually think she ended up being a good character because she was such a, like, tool or pawn of the villains in us in some ways. Like, I thought that was better than Vamp. And, or oh, Fat Man, I really, like, 
I don't understand. Like he he just <laughs> he just wanted to be cool, I guess. I mean, Fat Man like is kind of understandable. Like he's 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 crazy, he's just crazy. Right? <laughs> like but but he's crazy in a way that is, I guess, understandable to people who like crime fiction. Yeah. You know, he he's a bomber who wants a legacy as being the greatest bomber of all time. All right, that's a that's a character archetype I can get behind. You know, he views his bombing as works of art like it's a craziness that 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 resonates i guess vamp and fortune i mean fortune's you know whole i don't i can't die i'm like have you tried you know other <laughs> yeah. methods than letting people shoot you you might be able to die yeah. don't like fortune <laughs> don't like her at all vamp is just a ridiculous character and kojima can do better personally and he does do better with most of his other characters uh so, so yeah i think this boss roster mostly sucks i from a story perspective it's interesting i think it's like specifically deaths like those three characters i think that like narratively there's a lot more like villainous types outside of them and all of the villainous characters outside those three i think were done excellently ocelot continues to kick ass i, I love ocelot <laughs> he's so funny yeah um yeah. he's so, so in control all the time it's great yes um i want to take a bit of a step back um mm -hmm. from story for a second and kind of because i don't want to get too far in the story before we even touch gameplay because to me like the structure of this game is sort of split into like four distinct parts in my mind you've got the tutorial this first part of big shell that we're talking about the second part and then what i consider like the end game so I wanted to know, when we played Metal Gear Solid 1, one of the big criticisms was that there wasn't enough stealth gameplay. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, there's actually only five rooms, basically, in the entire game that I would consider as real stealth puzzles. Um, do you think that uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 managed to remedy that? Metal Gear Solid 2's did not only remedy it, it, it crushed it. I loved the stealth gameplay of Metal Gear Solid 2. It's not just good, it's excellent, and it's everything I had hoped it would be. It's a unique take on stealth that is distinct from things like Splinter Cell and Thief. Um, and I think a big part of that is also the decision, um, after we played Metal Gear Solid 1, I played on hard mode and I played without radar. And I think playing without radar is really important to get this kind of enjoyable experience because with the radar, it would be far too simple. Too simple, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that Metal Gear Solid 2 basically ex it, it expands on the gameplay from a level design perspective. It expands on it from the perspective of giving you more tools at your disposal. It expands on it um, from just giving you more of it. Like there's just, I would say, 10 times as much stealth gameplay. And that's not exaggeration. I think it's actually 10 times as much in number two as there is in number one. Um, I don't actually think that the core fundamentals have changed. They've just been improved. Like the core idea of you, you know, running around in third person, having two items to equip, um, like the way you control your stealth, like mm -hmm. getting on the floor, hugging up against walls, going under things, um, you know, equipping boxes, all that kind of stuff. You know, you could do that in one. It's just better realized here, right? It's not completely different. That's fair. It's not a revolution. Um, it hasn't changed. It 
fundamentally it's just improved on it in every conceivable way yeah. and I, I i do think that this is something that's true of literally every entry into the series like i think that uh every time a new metal gear comes out the gameplay improves and that includes metal gear solid 4 metal gear solid 4 has really really good stealth gameplay um so yeah i i was so impressed and i'm happy to go into some more specific examples but i just want to say straight out the gates metal gear solid 2's gameplay is really good and it's what i was hoping for and more. excellent yeah and i think that it did deliver on that for me as well because i played the first game without radar like it it actually felt quite similar still mm. to the first game to me um but there was just more of it I think a large part of it comes from the generation gap, right? We obviously go from a PlayStation 1 era game to a PlayStation 2 era game with this title, and there are so many engine improvements um, that I think I think some of this gameplay probably just wasn't possible like with the limited uh, hardware you know, that they had to work with. Can I just give you one big example that the hardware is in part responsible for? Mm. The game feels more three-dimensional. Yes. Metal Gear Solid 1, it is a game in 3D, but the level design for the most part is very, very 2D. It, it's very top-down almost. Yeah. Like it's whereas, like a top-down shooter, whereas this game, there's levels, right? There's like, levels, and yeah. the way you move through those levels, it gives you multiple pathways, and I cannot stress how important that is. The fact that you can jump over a lot of ledges and lean and drop in addition to different sets of staircases gives you so much freedom of expression and gives you so much control over how you approach these stealth scenarios that it feels like a new game. Like, it feels so different to the far more bland, uh, I guess, running around corners of Metal Gear Solid 1. Uh, I don't know. I know that we just said that it's not a revolution, I think that the better use of 3D space is probably the most revolutionary thing about this game compared to the first. A lot of it's in the ledge hanging mechanic that they've introduced. So now you can run up to like a, a rail and press triangle and snake will vault over it and then hang off the platform and you can like shimmy left and right. A large part of this game is set on Big Shell, which, you know, is a bunch of platforms in the ocean uh, separated by walkways you know 100 feet above the waves um and getting across you know these connecting bridges a lot of the ways you can get past guards is by hanging off the walkway and shimmying the entire way you can also like if you're two levels up and there's like multiple walkways on top of each other you can drop and then catch the next walkway on the way down and then shimmy on that wall and there's so many places in the game, like even in the tutorial, I was watching videos uh, on the tanker level where people had basically been able to cheese a couple of sections by just using the wall hanging at the right place. I think it's also worth noting that this isn't just, uh, this doesn't just make the game easy. Obviously having more options is a good thing, but enemies can also be a danger from different levels you can be spotted from above and it happens yeah. quite a lot so not only are you given the power to move through the, through these levels in different ways you have to be more actively aware of where the enemies are and as with the first game 
the kind of experience James had, which is doing a lot of switching to first person to observe your environment, you have to be doing the same thing here and being aware of enemies on higher levels than you. Did you use the AP sensor much, James? Because I found that that thing was absolutely critical and I loved, I don't even know if that was in the first game, it but wasn't. in this game, in this game, basically you, it's a, uh, it's a thing that you have a, you just sit in your item slot and as enemy guards walk closer to you, your controller rumbles and you can kind of hear a faint heartbeat as they approach closer. And I felt like this tool um, that kind of would give you a rough position of enemies was really helpful for moving, sneaking my way around these levels without relying entirely on just spamming uh, different camera angles. It's super important when you've got lots of small rooms with closing doors because mm -hmm. you need to be able to know where enemies are on the other side of the wall. Um, but if you open the door, they'll often spot you. So you can kind of just like sit at the door and you can feel the vibration getting stronger and then weaker. And from that, you can actually like, it's surprising how accurately you can figure out the speed that they're walking because mm -hmm. of the change in the vibe. It's really cool. Um, and you I, know when they start walking away, like it, it, it just works really well. It, it, it's, it's such a small thing, just, you know, a slight vibration, but it gives you all the information you need um, if you're willing to pay attention. Yeah, guards are generally smarter and like not just from the point of view of them finding you, but they're also designed more smartly so that they act dumb in certain situations where it makes sense for them to act dumb. Like you can abuse, like you can knock on walls and lead them, you know, different places, which you could do in one, but it's expanded here. Um, if you hide in a cardboard box where it makes sense that there would be a box, they just walk past you. If you use, there's multiple boxes in this game, and if you use the wrong box in the wrong area, they like double take and then walk back and then look at the box and then mm -hmm. they crouch down and look in through the hole at your face and then they actually pick the box up like physically and throw it away. Um, and then it turns back into a you know an item, and you have to start the fight. Which the guards uh, are also far more reactive. Uh, they need to radio in for help, and you can shoot their radio or trank them as they're calling in for help, and it won't trigger an alarm. So alarms don't just generate automatically in all circumstances. They there's actually a window for you to do something about it if you're quick enough on the uptake. Yeah, but if you trank someone, like you knock them out, the HQ will radio and they'll ask for a status update and because they're asleep, they can't provide it and then they send someone to check it out. So Yeah, compared to the first game, which was basically just, for me in most instances, I just reloaded because evading enemies was so difficult in that game and so punishing. Here, there's like these different tiers of escalation that you can do something about and engage with it in a gameplay sense instead of it's like oh i've been discovered time to reload in fact i think this game does that oh i mean i think all metal gear solid games are like this but it's something that's done much better than you know thief where getting discovered feels really bad with the yeah. quick save and quick load here i would often try to uh, deal with the situation and you know sometimes a bunch of guards would come and i'd get killed but there's not an immediate failure upon getting discovered. There are things you can do about it at different levels along the way. I did notice that, like, if you do do that, the areas start to get more, like, 
like the guards patrolling will get better weapons and stuff sometimes. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's yeah, cool. I did notice that there was this one instance where there was some guards with some shotguns and riot shields. Like, I noticed that they would come with the inspections if it got mm. a bit hectic, but then sometimes they would stay there for a while after, stuff like that. It was really cool. Um, so... To continue on, like, this gameplay, like, to go sort of back to narrative, so one of the first big gameplay objectives that you have at the start of the game is that one of the Dead Cell members named Fat Man is uh, an explosives expert, like you mentioned, um, and he actually plants a bunch of explosives across the big shell. Um, and you get given this objective by an ex another explosives expert to go and disarm the bombs. Um, so what this means is that you need to explore around the big shell, which is kind of arranged in a hexagon with each of the corners being like its own room uh, joined to the other part of the hexagon by like a bridge. So you need to explore all the six rooms. And I think there's two two bombs, is it, on every strut? One to two. I, I don't think there's always two, but there's up to two. Yeah, and so you get given a device that vaguely shows you like whereabouts it is, but not exactly. And you generally need to find where the bomb is and then disarm it while also evading the guards. Um, I'm really glad that I completely forgot uh, where these bombs were since the last time I played it, because I think uh, it would have been much less enjoyable if I just remembered. How did you feel about the uh, the bomb disposal section? I, I loved it. I yeah. thought it was really fun. It's almost like a puzzle within the main game where you have to... Uh, as you said, so the thing is, it kind of, you have to do, this is a part of the game that requires backtracking. And I think that in the first game when we were talking about it, we were pretty critical of the amount of backtracking you had to do in Metal Gear Solid 1 after that whole sniper section. It's frustrating and stupid and the game was wasting your time in multiple different ways. Um, here, what's happening is the areas that you've already gone through are being recontextualized. Areas where, and these bombs are really well hidden. So you've gone through these areas being unaware that there's something odd about them. And now you need to go through them again, evading the guards. But now you also need to find these cleverly hidden bombs. Uh, great. Loved it. You have to keep jumping into first person to get some weird perspectives. Um, it's not insanely difficult, I don't think. Like these aren't, it's not as hard as the bit where you're trying to find all the semtex, which is truly really difficult later but this kind of like hide and seek thing was was an enjoyable twist on the gameplay of something new while still having that stealth gameplay kind of wrapped in and around it and you're still engaging with it as you're trying to get through these areas i think all of the bombs were hidden in some place like fun i guess or like None of them felt like kind of rote or like I was just going through the motions with the disarm. They all had mm. their own very unique, com like completely unique place of like hiding. Like there was one room where there is a big set of conveyor belts and it turns out that the bomb is strapped to a box that is, you know, going over the conveyor belts at a fairly, you know, predictable rate but like it's hard to kind of like spray it with the you know the diffusal spray all in one go while also evading the, the the enemies and then like there was this other one where 
it took me forever. There was one that took us both forever, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure we both looked it looked up. up a walkthrough. Yeah, yeah. The one in the pipe room, which I, we were talking about this because we were both so frustrated about this one in the pipe room. And the thing that's so frustrating is it's fair. It's not even bullshit. Like it, it's a very reasonable puzzle for you to solve. I remember last time that I looked this up because I couldn't find it. Well, I knew where it was, but I didn't know how to get to it. And the yeah. same thing happened here. And both of us had this exact experience where once we looked it up, we felt like fucking idiots because it's so obvious how to get there. But like they even made like the way to do it, like, they color coded it for you. <laughs> like they did everything they could to make it easy. And three out of three times, like the first time I played it and these two, you know, we missed it. So maybe, maybe there is something wrong there, but I didn't feel mad about it. I just felt stupid. <laughs> yeah. But no, this um this bomb hunting bit is great. I, I think uh, I really enjoyed it. It, it was a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, me too. And at this stage of the game, I'm having a blast, particularly compared to the first game. Um, the gameplay here is just so solid and varied. And, and there's also so, there's such a like density of it too. Like there's still lots of codec calls and lots of cutscenes, right? Like there's mm. still lots of that, just like the first game. But the balance is a bit better, I think. And there's lo a lot less... I would say uh bitty you know gimmicky gameplay where you're doing something you know the bomb diffusal thing is a bit gimmicky but it so seamlessly fits in um and requires you to do stealth at the same time yeah. that it doesn't feel the same as like rappling down the wall in the first game you know or like it doesn't feel like a mini game you it, know it's a it's a combination of two things it's that the stealth gameplay is still there. That's still the meat and potatoes of the experience, right? Like, and that's what was missing from Metal Gear Solid 1. It didn't have that uh, basic mechanical foundation. It felt like a bunch of gimmicks stapled together. The other thing is that the gimmick is good. Like, like yeah. it's a fun gimmick. It's, it's a gimmick that's far better than any gimmick in Metal Gear Solid 1. So when you have set PC kind of gameplay, if you can make the set pieces fun and enjoyable all of a sudden they're not so much of a problem uh the problem with Metal Gear Solid 1 is you had stuff like the running up the stairs bit which was just fucking horrible and yes. no one wants to play nobody wants that. to do no that. one wants to do that I fucking mind blank that bit of gameplay out of my mind every single time like when I think back at Metal Gear Solid 3 and the ladder, I laugh. When I think about the fucking the stairs in Metal Gear Solid 1, I cry. The, the ladder in Metal Gear Solid 3 is unironically brilliant, and I love it. So like, funny. I, I actually think it's good. It's because there isn't <laughs> any like, tedious gameplay as well. You just like hold in a direction and it's fine. It's, it's, just, it's just a chance to play the song. That's what all it is. <laughs> it's just a cutscene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and has created memes for hundreds of it'll create memes for hundreds of years to come. I agree. Um so the the bomb diffusal section, um, it accumulates with the first, I'd say, real boss fight. Like there's one before, but like the real boss fight is against Fat Man. But before we get into that, I, I do want to talk about why I think that fight is bad and why the later Harrier fight is bad. And what it boils down to is that it's a wait, lot wait, of... Wait, wait, wait. When you oh. say that fight, do you mean Batman? Fortune. Fortune, okay. Yeah, so Fortune and the Harrier fight. The, the problem with these two boss fights is that it's a lot of waiting. Um, 
both of these fights are not you finding windows of opportunity to attack enemies. Yeah. It's about sitting there waiting for the enemy to do their thing. And in the case of Fortune, the entire fucking fight is waiting. If you want another reason to hate Fortune, she has the worst boss fight in the game, if you can even call it a boss fight. Yeah. The Harrier boss fight, I feel, is kind of similar in that there's, at least for me, there was a specific window of opportunity to do damage, which was after the missiles. And then I spent the rest of the fight hiding. Yep. Um, maybe you can do damage at other times, but it always felt better to just play defensively. Yeah, you can stinger it when it. it's doing flybys, but it's like really? it's wow. hard. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So why not just wait for the safe window? Um, the Fat Man fight though is completely different. The Fat Man fight's actually, I think, the best designed fight in the game. Probably, it's also like conceptually hilarious. Like you're literally. <laughs> You're fighting a huge fat guy in a bomb defusal suit with roller skates, and he is roller skating around this helipad, throwing C4 in crevices on crates, like, and then trying to take pot shots at you while you try to disarm the bombs. It's hilarious. Like, this is so funny. So I was spoiled on a lot with this game because i did the reading i was not spoiled that he would be wearing roller skates <laughs> and i think that it is a mark of genius that throughout the game no one that he's called fat man and no one ever mentions that he's the most agile he's more agile than vamp with his movement yeah. and then you get to the fight and he's fucking roller skating so quickly around and i i thought i thought that was great um, I agree with you, James. This fight is great. So the idea is that you're on the roof of a building and what uh, what this fat man will do is he'll start skating around faster than you can reasonably catch up to him and he'll start planting bombs, which are on a very... After he's planted the last one, so he'll go like one, two, three, four, and then he'll start a 30-second timer. Uh, if you do not defuse all of these bombs then the place blows up and you instantly lose the fight it uses the same mechanic from when you're trying to defuse the stationary bombs and that you can equip a tool to get a rough idea of where they are but you need to locate them defuse them all the while he's roller skating around like an idiot taking pot shots at you and rolling up to you and taunting you yeah um, now, i think this had the potential to be super frustrating if the uh timing window uh was a bit tighter like it's actually quite lenient like i think you mm. can easily defuse all four bombs like even when i was playing on hard he doesn't actually like shoot you that much no until you've defused the fourth one and then he'll start shooting you more aggressively so. he will he will literally like roller skate up to you and kind of laugh in your face as you're desperately trying to defuse the bomb i definitely died a lot i i know you say it's lenient james but i think that's maybe when you understand the mechanics of the fight better yeah because to start with i didn't even know you could detect the bomb so i died and then i didn't realize how crafty he would get with the placement because he won't just <laughs> leave them out in the open he'll put them underneath things on the side yeah. on top and on different not just on the obvious places he'll stash them around in weird corners there's this one where he hides them in well, it's like a cabinet with a tarp over it and you kind of need to like shoot the tarp out to like find mm. the bomb hidden under it but you've actually already seen that tarp mechanic in a boss fight during the tutorial so it's not like you know, you know you've it's not unfair yeah 
Yeah, so so what I loved about this fight, I mean, there's a lot of things I love about the fight, but there was tension between trying to defuse the bombs and shooting him. Because as James said, when you've defused the bombs, he becomes harder to deal with and hit. When the bombs are active, he'll just roll over to you and laugh in your face. So you're kind of caught between spending the time finding and defusing the bombs and taking the free shot and free damage at him and it's up to you to decide how much effort and time you allocate to both of those things the other thing is that there are multiple mechanics you can use to try and deal with him um he's wearing a bomb suit so he's mainly vulnerable in his head but you can shoot him anywhere if you're willing to do the damage and my strategy of choice that i felt very clever for thinking of even though it's not as tricky as i think is that i picked up a bunch of claymores and i basically put them down in his skate paths and when he, if he roller skates over the claymore, he will trip over and fall over, letting you get a free shot on his head for lots of damage. So to me, this boss fight is perfect. Like it's really good. And I think it stands out as one of the best fights in the entire Metal Gear Solid series. I, I loved it to pieces. It took me probably 10 tries total. I struggled a bit, but it was, it was very satisfying to deal with and overcome. It's so funny how, like, I feel like there's not very many games that are going for, like, this serious, like, terrorists are attacking the big shell um, that can get away with a boss fight this ridiculous and have it not <laughs> seem, like, completely out of place. But, like, this game, like, manages to wear this, like, really well. Um, and I think, like, it's always been one of the things I like about the series is when the boss fights, like, they act completely serious, but like conceptually, it's just completely ridiculous. The guy that shoots bees at you, like from Middle Gear <laughs> Solid Three, it's just so good. Um, the other thing with the Fat Man fight is that I do think that this is a spot where the ridiculousness is, uh, I guess, it doesn't feel as silly because we've already got a lot of insight into his character. He likes grandstanding, you know. He's exactly like, he's yes. ostentatious. He wants the world to know that he's, you know, this crazy guy. And so, when in the fight, it makes sense that he wouldn't just blow you up because he doesn't want to just blow you up. He, he wants, wants to blow to, you up with style. With style, he wants to do it on his own terms because, and he wants to prove that he's a master of doing it. If he just blew you up, it would be too easy. Like, there's nothing to prove if he does it in his own way. It fits his character, and we get a lot We get a lot about his character, right? Because of the, um, the, his mentor, who's also on the, um, on the big shell, who's the one who's directing you to defuse the bombs. If, um, if Fat Man played Magic the Gathering, um, would he be a Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> That's all he would be. <laughs> So I would say that this first section or this second section of the tutorial is probably like the best part of the game in terms of gameplay. Absolutely. I think not. I think in terms of narrative, this second section is probably the weakest during like when you're actually playing it. I think yes. on reflection, it gets a lot of points back. Um, but during this part, I think Raiden's characterization as, as is at its lowest point and, and as we'll discover later, this is totally intentional, but mm. at the time, he is not a very compelling character, and I didn't find uh, Fat Man or the characters you were interacting with to be super compelling at this point. Interesting, because I think, I think that you're right in a lot of ways, but I was 
kind of invested in the story. Like, I think that including Snake in the story as a secondary character was really interesting. Uh, Pliskin, sorry? Like, oh, sorry, sorry, Pliskin. Pl- mysterious Pliskin, who could be anyone. Uh, was was really interesting and well done. I kind of find it very cool whenever games do this, where they take a protagonist and then they turn them into a secondary character in someone else's story. I also think the the bomb defusal section and, like I said, the relationship between Stillman and Fat Man and how that I guess flowed into the gameplay was pretty compelling. Like I bought their history and their story Mm. i agree when it comes to like it's difficult to fit that into the broader narrative though right like it feels a bit like the the broader narrative is as you said uh underwhelming because it just seems to be retreading the same steps i just think that the actual going on of the story is still pretty enjoyable although interestingly enough this whole bomb defusal section i don't think is has a one-to-one equivalent in the first game this feels entirely new to metal gear solid 2 or at least it did to me yeah yeah for me too absolutely so like from that point of view it also ties in less to the broader story Mm. um and so maybe that's why it feels stronger yeah but like i think you know the gameplay is so good that i didn't really mind too much honestly i thought it was brilliant yeah so basically at this point in the game i'm feeling like pretty good like i'm thinking this game slaps i'm enjoying the story i'm interested to see how it works later but i'm on a very high high after the fat man fight yeah i um we discussed this a bit um at this point in you know because patrick and i were talking a little bit about the game at this point we try not to go into heaps of specifics so that we can keep it fresh for the episode but at this point in the game i know that patrick is loving the game and once i get up to the fat man fight i'm also a little confused because i recall that Last time I played the game, I was strongly of the the opinion that I preferred Metal Gear Solid 1 to 2, whereas Patrick was t- telling me that he thinks that standpoint is basically ridiculous, <laughs> like completely unreasonable. And at this I was point, also being unreasonable in the exact way in which I phrased it, but continue. <laughs> yeah, but, but at this point, you know, of me replaying the game, I'm also starting to question, like, why did I feel that way? This game mechanically is a gigantic improvement. There's way more gameplay. Um, and I know that the story is, like, really good once you get to the end so why is it that like in my memory i just like am very fond of the first game and i don't feel that way about this one um so i think well you know as we get further into the game i understand why i feel that way but you know we'll get there um so this is where we come to the first music break uh about an hour in and we're only like <laughs> a third of the way through this is going to be a long one i think um but justifiably so um i wanted to actually criticize this game's music um i think that on re-listening to the soundtrack it's not bad it's very subdued compared to the first game which i actually think if we were talking about another stealth franchise like thief for example i don't think that that's actually a criticism like to say that the music is in the background that it's you know takes a secondary role that it's atmospheric but to me metal gear you know its personality as a franchise 
it this is a game that has a fat guy in roller skates you know planting bombs all over the place it's not a it's a very in-your-face bombastic kind of franchise so to me this kind of subdued more in the background kind of soundtrack doesn't really fit it compared to Metal Gear Solid 1 soundtrack which was very bombastic very in your face had lots of music blasting during codec calls and you know all sorts of things whereas in this game there's less music during the codec calls it's normally just the background music that was in the room at the time the conversation started and there's only really two tracks that stood out to me over the course of the entire game despite there being like four or five times as many songs on the soundtrack compared to the first game whereas in the first game i basically remember every song and like a couple of them are just burnt into my mind uh like encounter the main theme see i kind of feel the same way but maybe not as strongly as you james it's important to note that by bombastic we're not saying that Metal Gear Solid 1 like all of the tracks are like super in your like uh horns blaring it, it's not like it's they're not high tempo they're not um you know loud necessarily um they're not over the top there are still some pensive pieces but in Metal Gear Solid 1 the music is very firmly in the foreground of establishing atmosphere and experience in Metal Gear Solid 2 it's more in the background so it just I, I agree with james i think that metal gear solid one soundtrack feels more iconic because of it's better integrated into the overall experience uh metal gear solid 2's is uh more subtly interwoven and as james said you're not skulking in shadows in metal gear solid in the same way you yeah would by no means is it a bad soundtrack on re-listening to this ost there wasn't a single song that i thought i don't like this it's just there were only a couple of songs that were like, I love this, right? Whereas Metal Gear Solid 1 to me is a soundtrack I love to death. So it's like a good soundtrack, but not a great one is kind of how I would like land yeah, on it. This game is one that de- Metal Gear Solid 2 and 1 demand comparison, as I said. they The game is asking for it with its design and structure, so it's hard not to. I think they're both good soundtracks, but I agree with James that number one does stand above. So um, we were thinking about which songs to play for the music break, um, and we're going to go with, you know, one of the songs that we think most characterizes uh, the Big Shell 1 kind of experience. So we're going to go with Arms Depot, which was like by far my favorite track out of the first half. So here we go.
So that was Arms Depot, and now that we are transitioning away from the beginning of the game and more into the second half, we start to see um, some characters like spilling a bit of information um, and kind of adding a new layer to the story. So from after beating Fat Man, we then move on to the central pillar of Shell One, where we are intending to... Uh, find the president's aide, Ames, who hopefully can tell us a bit more about the terrorists' plans um, and what we are kind of going to expect going into the second half of the game. Yeah, and I think with Ames uh, particularly, because Ames is the president's security guard, this is where you really start to get to, the, I guess, unveiling the layers of the conspiracy. In many ways, meeting Ames raises more questions than it answers. Uh, you know, he says that you're an agent of the Patriots and so is he, but you've got no idea what the Patriots are. And it does feel like it's still just riffing off those themes in Metal Gear Solid 1 where you can't trust the people in charge and that there's much more to the story of Big Shell than you originally thought. Yeah, Ames in particular seems a bit surprised when you talk to him. Like, he kind of gets this feeling not right and doesn't really know what's going on. Like, that there's actually some bigger conspiracy at here at play. And, you know... Uh, based on the weird conversations you've been having, you're pretty inclined to believe him as the player. Mm -hmm. um, this like section in like the center of Big Shell One was also like a bit of stealth um, and you know uh, infiltration. You acquire a terrorist's uniform um, and you can kind of walk freely around the base. There's a bit of like a puzzle aspect on one of the floors where you need to. Uh, you know, get a guard's face into a scanner to get through the door, but it's like pretty pretty standard gameplay up until this point. And it's um, quite funny. I know that you can do this bit without acquiring um the you know the full disguise. <laughs> you can just be sneaking around, which uh, might have been more fun to try. Particularly, I wonder what getting that directional mic would have been like because it's completely surrounded by guards. Can you actually get in the elevator if it? doesn't id you uh yeah but you it will check your uniform but you don't need to have the rifle uh because mm. the rifle component is the thing that's actually letting the disguise work so if you yeah. never go back and go get the ak-74 you can still go in there it's just all the guards and cameras will be hostile on site so it is right. possible to complete without doing that and i wonder if it would have been more fun to do that because that place is pretty well guarded <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty well guarded. Honestly, it kind of feels like accumulation of all the stealth you've been doing up until this point. It's mm. a bit trickier to get down there. But um, yeah, once you do that, you're kind of directed to go to Big Shell 2, like the Shell 2 of the Big Shell, where the president is supposedly located. Um, at this point, you know that they have nuclear arm, like a nuclear weapon and the codes to launch. So you need to get there to prevent this nuclear strike that they're going to be doing on Manhattan. So um, on the way, you kind of end up at this bridge, um, and this bridge is covered in Semtex mines, right? Um, and you need to defuse them all. 
So basically, you have this like shooting gallery section of gameplay where you need to find all of the detonators for the bombs hidden around the environment, and you have a fairly limited like viewport angle where you can stand. You can't actually go onto this bridge because otherwise it will detonate. So you kind of like you. I had to backtrack for a sniper rifle to get all of these. Um, how did you find this section? Um, I thought this section was really fun. Uh, they've already had some a couple of moments like this in the game where you had to find these control boxes for the mines. And what what's amazing about it is no matter how many you find, there's more to find. More to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I ended up having to look up a walkthrough for this. I found I think there's eleven mines on hard mode, and I found nine of the eleven. So I missed the one where you have to stand on tiptoes, and there's also one on a droid flying around. But honestly, this is just another example of, like, obviously this isn't the core stealth gameplay, this is something different, but it was quite fun. Like, I, I, I really liked this section trying to find all the mines, and some of them are very cleverly disguised that make you feel smart for finding them. So yeah. I, I thought this was I thought this was great. Yeah, I agree. And at like this point in the game, like one of our criticisms of the first was that it had a lot of like set piece gameplay, um and that that didn't really like fit with the rest of the game. And so at this point in Metal Gear Solid 2, I'm thinking, oh, they've learned their lesson and they figured out what kinds of side, you know, mechanics are kind of enjoyable to include in your stealth game. So mm -hmm. I'm pretty happy with it so far. Um, once you get onto the bridge, actually, um, a boss battle starts. Well, there's a lengthy bit of dialogue and then you get attacked by a Harrier fighter jet that can hover in midair. Um, and this is kind of where I think the actual transition into the second half of Big Shell takes place. Mm. I was not a huge fan of this boss fight. It's not really testing your ability to find gaps as much as just waiting very patiently for a long gap. It's very kind of rote and monotonous. I think if the boss had a bit less health, it would have been fine, but uh, towards the end, I've just found it to be a bit tedious, honestly. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier, but this boss fight is entirely dominated by waiting. Uh, the Harrier does strafing runs against you, and it has a clear window of vulnerability after it shoots missiles at you, and basically, you can just pretty... Once you understand how to avoid its attacks, it's there's no technical skill involved in doing so. So it just becomes you wait a minute between its attacks. The other thing that's frustrating is that if you do get hit by a missile towards the end of its missile attack, you've lost the opportunity to do damage to it. So then you need to go back to waiting again. Um, this boss fight sucks. I hate it. Uh, you yeah. know, it, it's it's not the worst thing in the world. Like it, it's it's bearable, but uh, this uh, this felt like a notable decline for Fat Man Fight. I was pretty disappointed. I honestly think it's worse than the equivalent fight in Metal Gear Solid One. Yeah, I agree with that. Although it's got a bit of spectacle to it, but like, yeah, the gameplay is quite rough. Um, so now we go into what I consider is like the third quarter of the game, and to me, um, this is strong. Like starting to get to be the point where you're really le like learning about some of the juicy details, or enough to have crazy theories as to what's happening going on. Um, this is the point in the game where you find the president, and he spills everything that he knows to you and it is also the point in the game where the gameplay shifts fairly dr drastically away from the stealth elements that were established in the first half of the game there's also just not as much gameplay like the gameplay to story ratio um was already about 50 50 and now it feels like it's pretty much shifted you know 20 80 or 25 75 
like yeah. there's a bit after that harrier boss fight where you're almost platforming uh, to get to get across the thing like there's lots of dangerous areas and you're just trying to get across to survive but there's there's really not not much more of it it's the focus as james said is really on the story and the president has major 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 revelations so i guess we should just throw a final spoiler warning in um we'll soon be getting into the real end game spoilers of metal gear solid 2 but i imagine if you've listened so far that won't bother you too much but just in case if you don't want the deeper secrets behind the game spoiled skip ahead now yeah so i think that this section is probably the weakest part of the game overall like if i was to replay this game again immediately uh, this would be the section that would, you know, stop me from replaying the game. <laughs> um, there are all sorts of kind of bad uh, set-piece kind of gameplay that Metal Gear Solid 1 had. Like, there's a fairly prolonged... There's two prolonged underwater sections that are just a pain in the ass to navigate. Um, there is a, some escort missions, uh, and there is a prolonged sniper escort mission where you have an NPC... Uh, crossing basically a long bridge and you have to like snipe drones and guards as they appear um, and you know she can pretty easily die and cause you to do the whole section again and it's actually quite long for mm -hmm. uh, how punishing it is so you end up having to spend a lot of time in that section um, there is one boss fight that's okay against Vamp here. I don't think it's as strong as like um, the Fat Man boss fight, but it's fine. It feels like a Metal Gear Solid One boss fight in that it's mechanically a lot simpler than um, than the Fat Man fight, but it, but it functions fine. Like in that fight, there's basically two stages he does: one where he throwing knives at you from around the place, and another where he goes underwater. And I don't really understand the purpose of the underwater bits. Like, is he doing anything while he's down there? Because I always just threw grenades at him and then he had to come up again. And I was like, well, why would you even bother going underwater? What's the purpose? Does he heal while he's down there? Or I, I have no idea, honestly. Yeah. Um, maybe he ambushes you, like he, he jumps up behind you or something. I, I don't know. I don't know. I always found it pretty easy to snap to him once he jumped out of the water. He does dodge you if you lock onto him with the controls. So you have to manually aim at him the entire right. time. Um, which I think is part of the difficulty of the fight, although he doesn't dodge stinger missiles. Which, uh, <laughs> or grenades. Yeah, or grenades or the grenade launcher. So, you know, not super difficult. I do remember he was quite tough when we used the M9 only the first time I played. Um, but if you use all the tools you have at your disposal, it's not too bad. So let's talk a bit about the shittiest part of the game, the water sections. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's. I think it's particularly... Okay, so... I don't think the water sections are, like, awful. Like, we've played some games with some truly atrocious yeah. underwater controls, like Ape Escape. I don't know if you remember that as, or that's a repressed I memory. I try not but, to, yeah. But I remember how bad that was. I think the swimming controls here are fine. Mm. I just think that this section is tedious and uninteresting. And because there are items down there, very strong items, You well, I spent a lot of time just trying to explore literally every nook and cranny and you have to keep coming up for oxygen and going back into the water the visibility and orientation is poor and then you find out that after doing that you have to backtrack underwater at a slower pace through all the same areas you've already been through it just feels 
uninspired and boring like it's like they did the tech for an underwater bit and it took them a long time and they're like this is going to be a significant part of the game because it took the whole studio three months to create yeah and uh it just didn't end up being fun i don't think it's any surprise that um underwater sections did not return to the series after this <laughs> game yeah before we go back into the narrative i did want to touch on the sniper section again i'm a bit conflicted on this because i don't actually think that it's a bad idea in theory like it's not like they've it, it doesn't strike me as being one of the worst set piece ideas they could have done. I feel this is more a matter of execution. Part yeah. of it is the fact that you're using the controller for the sniper rifle and it feels imprecise. That, For example, there are bits where you need to snipe claymores on the bridge, but I would regularly be in spots where I was sniping those far claymores where I would tap the D-pad left, right, up and down, and my cursor would go to either side of the claymore. So I'd have to like zoom out to a different level and then, you know, find find the right angle to do it. And you're under uh, time pressure as you're doing it. It was very annoying. I found it was fine with an analog stick because you can control sense. how slow it moves. Yeah, I, I was pretty much using the D-pad still from, um, but maybe I should have used the analog stick. The other thing is that it's very unforgiving. It, it doesn't really feel like something you can do based on reaction speed alone it feels kind of trial and errory because yeah. you have like guards will be out of sight and then all of a sudden four will appear within the space of three seconds and if yep. you don't know that this guard appears here then this guard then this guard then this guard all of a sudden there's just going to be four guards shooting emma and you lose and i don't really understand how you're meant to perfectly anticipate those four guards showing up when you also have to be worried about drones attacking her and claymores on the bridge feels like you have to fail these sections multiple times memorize them and then continue the sequence which to me is bad design i, I think that a sniper sequence you should be able to do based off reaction alone if you're you know fast and accurate enough yeah it would have been nice to have little checkpoints as well like at sections because there are some pretty is a pretty long section i think to me like the most tedious part of this section is that you have a fairly small maximum ammo count and in order to have a steady aim you need to take pentazamine which has like a stack size of five. like four or five yeah and it only lasts for about like 60 seconds Less. so you need it's to... like it's like 20 seconds it's really frustrating how yeah how so you need to like constantly like there's respawning ammo and pentazamine behind you but you need to like go out of sniping to pick them up and then if you don't angle your character towards the right section when you go back into the zoom the area you're sniping is really long so you can get into this situation where you know there's guards it takes you a couple of seconds to reorientate your aim in that direction and by that time like emma could die yeah and uh you I don't know if most people ran into this issue, but I didn't know there were the second set of claymores on the third pylon. So <laughs> Emma literally just walked straight into those claymores. And so just that died was, from full yeah, death, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was really great when I thought, yes, I'm finally making great progress. And I'm like, oh, mm, gotta do the whole thing. Gotta do the whole thing again. Yeah. So, yeah. I, but I don't think this is like. It, it yeah to I me this really feels like fun. poor yeah this feels like it could have been fun with some tweaks uh whereas i don't know how they could have made the underwater bits fun they were just bored 
so at this stage in the game, you know, I'm come down a bit off my high because I've gone from sneaking around to back to set pieces. And even though the Semtex one was good, they've kind of like descended into mediocrity. So narratively, I think uh, there's a bit of a split here between some really juicy bits from the president who now is telling you about the Patriots, which are the the main star of the show in this story, this secret organization who is running America from the shadows. Um, the president is merely a puppet in the, you know, the grand scheme of things. And at this point in the game, you know that the terrorist leader is Solidus Snake the third clone of Big Boss and former president George Sears, um, who was removed from office and is now seeking revenge, seeking to, you know, remove control, the Patriots' control from America and kind of, you know, free the people from their, you know, oppression, basically. This, um, this part of the story is so interesting. Like, I, I think that this is where everything gets turned on its, its head not not just from a broader storytelling perspective but in terms of what your identity and role is in the story so you find out that the current president was seeking to become one of the patriots and that solidus is seeking to overthrow and destroy them you've already gotten hints that you're an agent of the patriots with multiple people saying to you oh you've been sent by the patriots or oh i'm, I'm glad there's another one of us out there and all of a sudden, it becomes clear that maybe you're not the good guy. Maybe these people, these terrorists, are maybe working towards a better goal and that they've been misrepresented from the beginning. So I loved all these revelations and I kind of knew they were coming, but I didn't realize to what degree Solidus and his crew of Dead Cell were really the, um, were really the good guys in this story. In a way, it's kind of interesting because the way they're seeking to reduce the control and kind of lead to this domino effect of the Patriots losing their power is legitimately to nuke Wall Street, which <laughs> is like a major influence on how they have control on the country. So as Raiden, you still kind of don't want, you know, this guy to nuke like an American city, right? Like, even though, you know, this shadowy organization that you barely know anything about may or may not be controlling the entire country and you know from it the world right yeah so, I, I mean it is true although you later find out that that's not the true goal right isn't the true goal to get the identities of who the patriots are yes and, but and, you don't know that at this point yeah, you don't know that at this yeah. point yeah and and i mean just hearing the president basically admit to being self you know complicit in the terrorist plot up to the point where because he was like yeah i i don't give a shit i just want to be one of the people ruling the entire yeah. world in the shadows it's kind of confronting i mean it's the president he's meant to be you're trying to rescue him and he's like nah fuck everyone i just want to be in charge so i i, I think it's uh it's a really good story twist and i i enjoyed this section a lot um and it made a nice contrast to the shitty swimming section <laughs> that was to come yeah, I think an important part of this conversation is that the room you're in is completely isolated um, from any kind of outside radio signals. Um, so you actually can't make codec calls at all inside, you know, this room that you're having conversation with the president. Yeah, so presumably you're not being monitored either. Yes, which makes it very strange that the moment you step out of the room, 
you get a call from the colonel who starts talking about the conversation you just had <laughs> even though there should be no way for him to listen in to the like the, i actually missed that yeah to the shielded room so oh. i mean it's obvious it's obvious now that you say it but i wasn't thinking about that at the time yeah, um, so there's a lot of, like, little, like, attention to detail things in the story that I think they did really well, and this is one of them, um, and it kind of, like, pays off big time later on. But um, there is actually, a, there's a second component to the story in this part of the game, which kind of revolves around Otacon and his family, right? Fucking hate it. Oh my god. <laughs> it's so tedious and slow. So not only are you going through these tedious, slow underwater bits, it keeps getting broken up with cutscenes where Emma Emmerich is talking about her and her brother's relationship, and I could not give less of a shit. Like, I really didn't care. I said one of the things I wanted to talk about with this game is how well it does its emotional and dramatic moments. These are, these are a keystone part of the Metal Gear Solid series, starting from Metal Gear Solid 1. And I basically, my feelings was with Metal Gear Solid 1, that these cutscenes went on way too long, um, even yeah. though some of the ideas in them were actually really good and interesting. Metal Gear Solid 2, I think, is more of a mixed bag in that I think that some of these relationships are well done and some are not. I think everything between Jack and Rose is reasonably well done, although the stilted nature of the voice acting does, doesn't yeah, sell it to me as Yeah, it's not as good this game, right? It's not as strong. I still think the best emotional relationship in this game is Stillman and Fatman. I think that everything between them and as you learn about their relationship and, you know, all the little uh, quirks about the way Fatman makes the bombs and how Stillman has an inside perspective, I think that all works really well. And I think that when, um, when Stillman blows up, it is actually reasonably well done. Yeah. I think the stuff with Emma is the worst part yeah. yeah, and I think it's because you don't really have an end to this relationship. It's Emma, and from Raiden's perspective, he he barely knows uh, Otacon, yeah. barely knows him, and it just drags on and on and on. Every single time you get out of the water, it's another 15-minute cutscene of Emma banging on about her brother. It's like, don't fucking care. Let me get back to the Patriots. <laughs> I think it's a different problem than the first game had. So the first game had this thing where a character like Meryl would, you'd, you'd be talking to them and they'd have a codec call that has a genuinely good, like, emotional hook to it and mm. then goes five minutes too long and kills, like, the, the atmosphere. Mm. That happened multiple times. I don't think that problem happens in Metal Gear Solid 2. What I do think happens is you have, you know, uh, two minutes of a reasonable cutscene, and then you walk five steps, and then you have <laughs> another one. Yeah, and that's the bit. That's what gets frustrating, and that happens specifically in this section and the very beginning of riding getting to Big Shell. Although at that point, I think it's fairly justified that, that that's happening. Here, it, you just feel like I just want to get on with the game, right? Yeah, um, it, it doesn't help that when, like, from a gameplay perspective, Emma is slowing you down as well. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, a literal <laughs> escort mission, and it's not like an NPC who follows you. Like, you literally have to hold her hand and walk super slowly <laughs> through this level you've already traversed, and then suddenly guards will appear, so you have to leave her in a room. To, to be fair, 
that bit is like good where there are the guards in the room and you have to figure out how to navigate with her yeah. without her getting discovered like from a gameplay perspective it feels like it's like yes we're finally doing some stealth gameplay again but yeah she she is uh she is a paperweight i hate emma yeah i actually think that it's okay once um so spoilers yeah once she gets um vamped um yeah that was Otacon... the highlight for me when she got stabbed yeah honestly <laughs> that bit where that bit where Otacon goes down the elevator and then the bird like calls his name and he just collapses against the wall i was like that was <laughs> that was like the most well done part of that whole section um all the bits leading up to it were a bit tedious mm. um so once we finally get through all of that, we get to by far the most interesting part of the game narratively. So we discover that Big Shell is actually a front um, for a bigger secret underground operation. There is a giant underground metal gear essentially called Arsenal Gear that is basically... A it's nuclear like a submarine. Sub yeah, it's a giant nuclear submarine. It's kind of um, uninspired in some ways. Like, I mean, the concept of a Metal Gear has always been nonsensical, but at least in the first game, they did try to explain why Metal Gear Rex was yep. was special, and you could kind of hand wave it away and say, okay, it's a magical nu nuking thing that's distinct, whatever. Here, it's just a nuclear submarine, and I, I don't really, and they don't even try to explain why it's super special or anything. So I, I was kind of disappointed with the concept of it as a Metal Gear. Yeah, but I think there's more to it, though, right? Like, there's a lot not... more to it, and and maybe that's part of the um of the trick it's trying to pull. Yeah, so you are about to go down, like through this elevator into Arsenal Gear, and then Snake and um. Otacon suddenly turn on you and knock you out um, and then you basically wake up uh, inside the belly of Arsenal Gear strapped to a like torture device which is very reminiscent of the torture room in Metal Gear Solid it's, it's 1. It's actually fact, identical it right? Exactly it's, the same layout yeah. It's, it's exactly the same yeah which uh and this is the bit where yeah the story starts to get very weird very quickly. Very bizarre. Um, So during the section with Emma, she is quite a smart programmer and has created this virus that they can use to uh, upload into Arsenal Gear and hopefully prevent the nuclear launch. So Snake and Otacon do this, and then as you are kind of like escaping from the torture room, you start getting these like really bizarre codec calls from the colonel, like very strange. He's talking complete nonsense at times, like. It's like, I don't know, he's taking drugs or something and he's freaking out. But also, the feed with your codec is starting to spaz out as well. Like, it's playing up, there's weird images being shown to you. Also, he's codec calling you, like, every five seconds. Like, it's, it's not like you're getting one every 30. You literally get one every five seconds that you can answer. Yeah, five. it's like five seconds and he's like, Raiden, I forgot to go to the shops last Monday and call. <laughs> immediately calls back right and where are the scissors like like all sorts of like bizarre shit fourth wall um, breaking stuff as well he tells you to shut off the game console also the environment you're in is weird uh it, the thing that stands out is that it's very reminiscent of the vr missions yeah. so the ground beneath you as you walk around it you can see kind of like a grid uh as if it was a holodeck 
kind of VR scenario, it's exactly the same. And the architecture and environment is very stripped back and bare. It, it just looks like the VR missions in a lot of ways. And it makes you start questioning reality. Like, is any of this actually happening uh, at all? And I wanted to ask you this, James, because I actually don't know what the theories are around this section or what, what the consensus is. Is what's happening in this section in these uh, couple of rooms actually happening or is this happening in Raiden's head? And it's only when we cut to the group of bosses later on the, on the, on the roof of Arsenal gear that we're returning to reality. I'm pretty sure it's real. I think the idea is that you're not supposed to be sure. Like, this is a part in the story where you're really questioning the nature of what's going on super hard. At this point in the game, I believe you have knowledge of the greater plot with Arsenal Gear, that it is not just a nuclear launch platform, but it is a system designed for information control. Arsenal Gear houses the GW system, which will be used by the Patriots to filter the information flowing through the internet uh, and through to the people. And with this, they will solidify their rule um, by, you know, preventing people from learning about their existence and by controlling, uh, you know, information. This, like, angle of information warfare is the, you know, the true aim of the group. Yeah, and this is a new idea, and I think it's an awesome idea. Uh, up to this point, it's always been... I guess the main threat behind the game has been the same. That is nuclear warfare, terrorists taking control of nukes and blowing everyone up. Classic terrorist storyline. Having information control be the ultimate weapon in this game is a very interesting and new perspective. And I think we'll be talking about some of the ramifications of this a bit, a bit later, James, because uh, this is when it starts getting quite heady. Yeah, so... At this point in the game, um, like, you're actually completely naked as Raiden. <laughs> One for the fangirls. One for the fangirls, yeah. He's running around with his hands over his junk and you're doing cartwheels. Like, it's it's very silly. I think there's this, like, farcical nature to the game's plotline where there's a lot of, like, stupid noise in the background and this is kind of, like, one element that adds to the absurdity. Like, Raiden throughout the game is making is asking questions to the colonel. Like, he's like, what the hell is going on? This makes absolutely no sense. On one hand, it is this serious game about um, rescuing the president, stopping nukes, stopping information warfare. And on the other game is all of this stupid stuff, like the man on roller skates to the vampire who can't die. <laughs> like, this, yeah, it's just so ridiculous um, at the same time. And Raiden is, like, really, really questioning what's going on. So at this point, you make up, meet up with Snake, and he gives you um, a sword, a high-frequency blade. And then the majority of the combat from this section on actually shifts from being... Um, mostly gun and firearm focused to being basically entirely based on melee sword play. Which... One, one of the things I quite liked about the sword gameplay is I haven't played Metal Gear Revengeance and I had no idea how Raiden went from being like a member of Foxhound to a, you know, to a Devil May Cry ninja. And I didn't know this happened at the end of the game that you got the sword. This was actually yeah. new to me. 
uh, which which was quite cool because you know so much of this game I've spoiled for myself. So it was very cool to have this as a gameplay element. I I didn't know it was a gameplay element. I didn't know uh, from a story perspective how Raiden became what he was in the later games. So I really liked the sword bits, both from a narrative and gameplay section. It was something new, and it was very simple to control, but still satisfying enough. Um, I think this is one of the gimmicks that was successful, basically. Yeah. Uh, for, for, for a game that, you know, I don't think the combat is the strongest point, this was exactly satisfying enough and lasted long enough that I think that the mechanics didn't overstay their welcome. Yeah, I liked that the way the, the sword controls is that the right analog stick, if you flick it vertically, you do like a vertical slice. And if you flick it horizontally, you do horizontal. And then you can actually press the button in to do like a lunging attack. Did, and does, you can actually does Metal like, Gear Revengeance build on those mechanics? Like, obviously it wouldn't be exactly the same, but is it using the analog stick as, as a way to do slices? Uh, it's been so long since okay. I played. Definitely, I need to this... play that game. I've heard so many good things about it. It's quite good, yeah. There's yeah. um mostly like going into first person. You definitely control it like that, but okay. yeah, I don't think it's quite the same. Probably, uh, you probably control the camera. With the yeah. Oxys, yeah. So there's yeah. So then you go into this big circular room with the sword gameplay, and it's basically like a survive mission. And there is this is the point where like the fourth wall breaking stuff kind of like reaches its crescendo. There's a section like halfway through where it does the game over screen even though you didn't die. But in this game the game over screen has like a little window that shows where you are and you can actually keep playing the game in the small window while this is happening. It's very silly. Um I got I got pretty confused by it. I kind of knew that these fake game over screens were coming and i mean i think anyone who's played Metal Gear Solid 1 is probably suspicious that something like this will be happening i did uh i did stop for a bit uh i didn't i didn't think i had a game over but i thought that it was just like a temporary thing and then it would resume no, no, no. i, I didn't keep playing <laughs> yeah i didn't expect like the gameplay to continue in the tiny window so i got a bit tricked by it but i didn't uh i didn't suffer a death because of it it was pretty fun. Um, I would say that the gameplay after this, you go into probably the most challenging boss in the game. For me, afterwards. it was by far. Yeah, it's like you have to fight 25 Metal Gear Rays in a I, row. I don't know if it's 25. It's like 15 it or feels 10. Like, it feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah, it just keeps going. They just keep spawning. You always have to fight three at once. And you basically have unlimited stinger missiles in this section. But yeah, it, it's quite like it takes you quite a while to get the hang of it. Um, well, you first have to figure out like what, how to beat them. And the way you beat them is you shoot them in the leg, then you shoot them in the head, right? And once you figure out that pattern, it's a lot of dodging, then very rapidly switching to your Stinger missile and going for the one, two over and over again. Uh, I was eventually free aiming it, James. Like I wasn't waiting for the lock on. They're fairly immobile, so they can't dodge too well. And if you just yep. go leg heads and try and do that super quickly, then go back to dodging, I eventually just survived long enough to get them all. I, I found I also had to shoot stray missiles at the other two just to make sure they weren't going into their, oh, uh, their I was rocket also, animation. chaff grenades as well? Yeah, I did yeah, that yeah. as well. The, I think that... So I read up... I didn't know what they did, but I was like, surely this was doing something pretty effective. It makes their missiles and machine gun fire very inaccurate. 
so yeah i was just spamming them shooting out rockets uh and it's all about just rapidly being able to shoot off those two rockets before going back to dodging and if you take too long and stand still in the same place too long you're going to take a lot of damage and die pretty quickly you know the laser beam they did that always fucked me up uh oh the one that when they jump towards you yeah. yeah for me it was like figuring out they do these homing rockets that kind of like if you dodge towards them you can get away from them but at first they kept hitting me mm. um i think yeah it's very once you have all the mechanics down it's actually just a matter of time for you to whittle them down but at the start it felt like a pretty insurmountable challenge i think it feels pretty overwhelming doesn't it i think this is a good fight though like as a as an end game fight yeah i can get behind something like this yeah it does feel a bit bullshit to begin with but what it is actually completely fair it's just you you just have to put the time in to master the fight. And that's okay, right? Like, a part of it is that they all have so many attacks, and there's three of them, so you can't just... It's hard for you to grasp what, what the actual threats are, and you have to be hit by most of these attacks once or twice before you even understand how they're dangerous. But yeah, I think this is a good fight, and it's a good fight to cap off... Um, you know, I would say this is, you know, probably a top three fight in the game. The the boss fights in this game are not the best in the world, but this is one of the good ones. Yeah. So, okay. So now that that's done, we basically get into the biggest, like, section of reveals. There is a lot of cutscene and we, dialogue in let's, this next uh, section. Let's have another music break, James, because I feel like this final section is worthy of a... Uh, a section all of its own yeah sure okay well let's do one of the boss fights just to round out the music section we'll do uh yell dead cell which i thought was by far the best of the boss themes um and one of the two tracks i actually remembered hmm. from the game um so we'll do that one and then we'll go into full extreme spoilers and have the conversation that we've been you know all wanting out of this episode so just a note on this boss music it does get repeated a couple of times or variations on it get repeated a couple of times for the boss fights what i think's interesting about this boss fight is music is that it's almost like a brass band trying to imitate an electronic piece of music in that it's incredibly high tempo and i guess insane in in its uh in its is feel like you can hear the the um the trumpets and everything going off but the tempo and feel of it is electronic so i quite like this piece it was um very different from anything in Gear solid one the only downside to it is that it repeats uh i would have liked to have more unique boss music for each confrontation but yeah yeah this 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 track is is fascinating i really like it yeah it's really good so this is yell dead cell
so that was yell dead cell so now we get into the biggest part of the story um and the most like shocking of all the revelations there is like plot twist after plot twist the plot twists start cancelling each other out it gets really really wild <laughs> here yeah so 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 plot twist twist one is of course the one we mentioned earlier that this is not really about the nuclear missiles this is about information control but that plot twist is about to get rap rapidly upstaged by uh ocelot's revelation yeah so it turns out that um the entirety of the game and we've been talking about this a bit is actually a complete recreation of metal gear solid one in fact the entire point of the game um, was to create another super soldier-like Solid Snake by recreating the events of Shadow Moses. So all of those like allusions to the first game are completely intentional, um, and you've basically been a pawn of the Patriots all along in their plan to gather data to create, you know, the ultimate sets of soldiers. Yeah, Ocelot basically lays it all out. He tells Solidus that he's a pawn. He tells Fortune that she's a pawn. And in the most satisfying scene in the entire game, just shoots her dead. I love that. You know, she's been invulnerable to bullets this whole time. And Ocelot shows her how stupid she is by just shooting her. Great scene. Yeah, that was excellent. I do think, like, this twist does feel a little... Uh, like, when it happens, it feels a bit weirdly underwhelming. It's like... So the whole point of this was to give... A soldier good army training like it, it all of this is so that we can see if we can recreate a super soldier in vr i was like isn't this a lot of time and effort invested into this that was the only thing that stood out as a bit know. strange to me i don't know if you felt the same if you way, could James. mass produce soldiers that could 1v25 metal gear rays like that seems pretty good but how expensive <laughs> how expensive was it in order to produce this soldier <laughs> like what did they have to do in order to produce a single soldier if they can do it in vr then like they already can do it in vr i mean as Ryden said shadow moses is a vr scenario so I i'm just saying that in terms of like the twists that are to come later feel a lot more substantial than this one this one felt a bit weird to me just because the scope of what they did in order to create this scenario seemed out of whack with what uh ocelot was claiming the purpose behind it was and i'm well aware that metal gear solid is a nonsensical series in a lot of ways but this didn't quite make sense yeah i mean i kind of feel that way as well um although the P the patriots themselves are like like they're rich beyond the point where it matters right in some <laughs> ways i mean yeah yeah I, and i think this is starting to get into the uh the broader revelations but there's there's this running theme of the Patriots being like incredibly powerful, like crazy powerful. So you know the president says, "Yep, democracy is a is a sham. It's not real." And Ryan's like, "But doesn't the president have some power?" And the president's like, "Nope, I have no, no power. <laughs> I have zero power. The Patriots rule everything." So the Patriots in this game are not only the conspiracy you know running things behind the shadows they're effectively all powerful 
and this didn't quite jive with me too well, James. I was mentioning this this to you earlier, but there's a film called Brazil by Terry Gilliam, and it's kind of a reimagination of 1984, but with the realities of his understanding of bureaucracy, which to him was hopelessly incompetent and, and inefficient, kind of underlying everything. My problem is every time I view one of these, you know, movies or shows or video games where you have this ruling authority that is all powerful, I can't help but think of Brazil, which to me feels like a far better realization of what an all powerful government would be like than I guess the perfection that seems well, to underline these uh these organizations as they're depicted in other Well, people. your main criticism of this is that in Brazil the the problem is that these ruling parties are still human and though so there are all sorts of like you know mistakes and inefficiencies and problems yeah. yeah that like undermine their power so one of the other revelations in the game is actually that the patriots like the original founders are actually long dead um and you, the that, patriots... happens, that happens post credits right like that's like the very very last revelation yeah but you do know that the patriots that you've been talking to like because at this point you know that the colonel and possibly rose have been like at least replaced by a sentient AI. ai of some kind yeah and the current patriots that you're dealing with are ai so i actually think that kind of negates your counterpoint because like they aren't human they don't make those kind of mistakes they are ai right well i mean yes and no i mean we have our current understandings of ai ai is a very very long way away from being perfect yeah i mean much further a... away from being perfect than humans are at least so yeah, I think but... they'd face their own... Uh, but yes, theoretically, if the AI was 100 million times more intelligent than humans and was capable of effectively replacing the bureaucracy that is all of the chains and links between humans because it's a single organism, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, so the biggest... Yeah, so the biggest point of the... You know, is this system of information control. Um, and they make this kind of like this case to you that they're not looking to like enslave humanity but actually to assist humanity in some ways right yeah and i mean but this is this is the whole idea right like anyone and, and this is well so, sorry to make it clear this is well done by the game like the game presents these ai and they make the argument that humans are not fit to run their own affairs affairs and it gives a lot of really cutting examples for why that might be the case uh, the, they talk about how when there's so much information out there, it's hard to distinguish between the truth and misinformation. It, they talk about how people get stuck in their own bubbles of information and those bubbles lead them to false conclusions because they're not being exposed to the full picture. And I can tell you today, like literally in 2023, we are seeing the consequences of people being in information bubbles of people being exposed to misinformation there being incredibly complex conflicts that are misunderstood by most people because of the way information is delivered to them so i felt that this argument that the patriots made cut very close to reality and was almost shockingly relevant uh 20 years on after this game how perfectly Hideo Kojima has predicted our current problems with technology. 
it's really confronting, right? Like it, it's a very compelling it, idea. It's, like, it's almost more confronting today than it would have been playing back yeah. in two thousand two, two thousand and three, when the game was released. Because we we weren't at that level yet. But I mean, that's pre YouTube. That's that's uh, ancient in terms of modern social media technologies. One of the yeah, and one of the key like things is not the idea that. It's not just misinformation that they're guarding us, they want to guard us against. It's this idea of truth that is, they start talking about this idea that, you know, multiple people can hold these conflicting opinions and, and fully believe in their own subject matter. And then all of this quote unquote truth and conflicting information gathers and gathers on the internet and all over until it's impossible to it's impossible to figure out what's actually going on under this sea of conflicting in quotes truth right and i think this is like something that they've done quite a good job of reflecting in game with the way they've presented the narrative there are multiple characters in metal gear solid 2 that all give you like heaps of information that is from their perspective the truth of the you know what's going on behind the scenes and even though all of those characters fully believe what they're saying, uh, not all of it is actually as it seems or is true. Some of it conflicts. And at this point, like, you've been given so many plot twists that further conflict with each other that it's really hard to know without, like, doing a lot of research or reading up about it what's actually going on here in the moment of you playing the game. Yeah, so the final real, well, maybe not the final, but one of the major revelations in this end part is that the per that yes, Big Shell was an orchestrated thing by the Patriots. Like it wasn't an actual thing; it was all orchestrated behind the shadows. But the purpose wasn't to create good soldiers for army training. It was meant to be a microsm or a um a prototype of how information control and people control would work in the real world on a much 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 larger scale and basically everything goes according to plan for the patriots they tell everyone what to do everyone believes that they're doing their own thing motivated by their own free will and you all dance to the patriots tune and you fulfill your role you, multiple times you get told you have to play your role or this is what you have to do and every step along the way, you do as you're told to do. Uh, so it's, and they say that, you know, what we're here to do is we're here to provide context and meaning. So they provide context and meaning to every single pe person's actions. And a lot of those people believe to their deaths that they're doing things that are contextual and meaningful to them. But in the end, it's all an elaborate ruse and none of it is true. You said before, James, that you don't think that what the patriots are doing is slavery i would say it is effectively slavery it's just built up i think the question is more does it matter that you know for, for the the patriots would argue that for the human living their life does it matter if they they're slaves if they never knew that they were a slave and that and if their life was meaningful to them in spite of the fact that all of their lives and actions were controlled it's interesting like when i was playing this game i was like and they were doing that revelation i was like man i can't wait for them to introduce this, like someone to invent this bullshit <laughs> <laughs> it's like we, we need this kind of information filtering now right <laughs> well it's one of those things right like 
obviously the systems we have in place are highly flawed, but I have an intrinsic distrust of authority. And I have intrinsic distrust of anyone and anything that says, actually, we're the ones who should be in control of it, particularly if those people are not yeah, accountable I agree. in any like, way, shape, or form. Like right? to be to be fair, like I fully agree that the Patriots are villains in this game and like yeah. their, their actions are not like to be trusted. Um, but it is fascinate a fascinating idea, like, and I think they've really set this twist up well. Like the the foreshadowing and everything that's been done up until this point makes it like like this final reveal. Just like I feel like it re it recontextualizes the whole game, and it was awesome, right? Absolutely, and I think I agree with you. I think it's very well done. It's also I don't think it goes over the top, like with the length of the cutscenes or anything. There are a lot of cutscenes at the end lots. of the game, yeah, but, but it's all just but it's all interesting, right? Like it's yeah. it's an interesting like movie to sit back and watch. Except maybe some of the scenes between Jack and Rose go on a bit too long. But anytime the actual Patriots AIs are speaking to you, it's fascinating. I wish Raiden could do a better job mounting some counter arguments to what the uh Patriots were saying instead of just continuously anime gasping. Um, because it does end up framing their perspective a bit stronger than um, than maybe it is. Well, um, I mean, they picked him for a reason, right? That's like, true, yeah. He, he's the pawn. Yeah, and we do get an alternate perspective with Snake, essentially. Because Snake is the one that tells Raiden that he has to be the one to decide what to do. And I think the most important thing is Snake doesn't tell him what to do with his life. He said, when Ryan asks, what do I do now? Snake goes, well, that's that's not my problem. That's yours. And that kind of, I, I guess that that's the idea, right? Like, it's not up to others to tell you what to do, what role to play. You need to make that determination yourself. There's a bit of meta-narrative happening here as well, because Ryan essentially is the player, like not just, you know, the player character. Um, he kind of represents this idea that, like a soldier and sort of like the person playing the game aren't too different and they're just essentially following orders like you sit down at your you know your console and the game tells you what to do when you do it and they kind of like take that you know this parallel and kind of like use that as a way to frame the narrative he's a very literal player in yeah very much so like he's naive and easily and he just listens and does things you know without question to a lot of sense i think like all of these elements are just awesome like yeah. um and i think it all accumulates with the final boss fight against solidus the man who was president of the united states and was the second ever to step down so that he could or at least, you know, you say he was demoted, but who knows for sure. Um, this, this man who stands for the freedom of America fights against the pawn of the Patriots, who ultimately wins. And it's like, I'm pretty sure the villains actually won in the end of this game, even though, you know, Raiden quote-unquote won against Solidus in the final fight. Yeah, and this is the thing it comes back to, are we the bad guys? It's quite awesome that you've played this entire game representing the bad guys fighting against the good guys. I can't think of many games that, that have done this. Maybe Spec Ops The Line is the closest I can think of. Um, and I think that Kojima would probably love the concepts in that game. That I feel like there's a pretty strong through line between Metal Gear Solid 2 and that game. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, I love the idea of playing as the representatives of the bad guys trying to beat the good guys. And I think it's all the more meaningful for the much, much, much additional context we get with this in later games. Although I do wonder how much of the series Kojima had mapped out at this point and how many of the specific revelations had been mapped out because it feels like at the end of Metal Gear Solid 2, it feels very open-ended as to as to what this all means, right? Like what this all means, what the future holds. And then Metal Gear Solid 3 and 4 obviously go a long way to locking it in um, and to some degree removing some of the mysticism and uh, I guess feeling of confusion that you have with Metal Gear Solid. It gets kind of normalized into yeah. something a lot more boring um, with the later games. But the end of Metal Gear Solid 2, with its trippiness, it feels much more, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, James, but it feels much more dreamlike. Yeah, it's very funny that I think the ending is intentionally has all of this noise in it that makes it very, it's very easy to like look up explanations and stuff on the internet, which I think is just hilarious, given that, you know, the whole point of the ending is to make your own interpretations of things uh see okay so this is actually i kind of disagree about the irony there because and this is something i have beef with a couple of developers about jonathan blow mainly um where there's this repeated theme in some video games that you need to get understanding and meaning yourself that that you basically should experience sorry i'm going on a bit of a tangent here but this is one of my personal bugbears that there's this idea that you need to play a video game as a solo experience and derive meaning from it yourself. I strongly disagree with this perspective. This is, of course, mm. a valid way of interpreting and engaging with video games. But I think that there are ways to socially engage with video games as part of a community, whether that's playing with a friend, playing for a game with a group of friends in Discord, or going on the internet and engaging in fan communities. That is walkthroughs and explanations and things like that as a way to derive meaning and understanding about what games mean so i actually think that going online and engaging with communities as a way to gain understanding of video games and you know there are millions of fantastic youtube video essays which explain video games that i'm so grateful for is a very valid way of engaging with video games as a medium and i really don't like this idea that 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 perspective should be discounted as lesser than having a one-on-one -on -one experience with them. It does, it does feel like one of the points that they're trying to get across with this game though, right? Well, kind of, except that I guess what I would say is that going online, for example, to read other people's perspectives doesn't invalidate you having a perspective. You're yeah. just gaining more information before coming to your conclusion. If you were to go online and say, yes, this person, I'm going to take this person's opinion without understanding it and regurgitate it, maybe you're onto something. But broadly speaking, engaging with multiple perspectives on a topic and then coming to your own conclusion is a really good way to come to your own perspective and own yeah, I agree with that. And I feel like, honestly, one of the things that this game does the best is it gives people the uh, ability to come up with wild crackpot theories. <laughs> like, there is just it's the right such... level of vagueness, right? 
Yeah, yeah, there is, like, you know, that theory, like, is everything in Arsenal gear actually happening? Even Raiden makes these, like, questions. He's Raiden says, is Rose even real at one point? Well, like... it's pretty weird that at the end of the game, <laughs> Rose is just there. Like, you have to, you have to, like, that's a very weird ending that she just happens to be there, right? Well, she actually was real for, I think, up until there's this conversation where she mentions she's pregnant. Um... I think well, that's when she gets replaced. I read a theory that basically whenever Rose is on the... Whenever she's interjecting in Campbell's codec calls, it's fake. And whenever you do one-on-one -on -one phone calls with her, she's real. Interesting. Yeah, um, I, I don't actually know, know how, how no, real that is, right? Well, I mean, there's no way to prove either way, right? Like, I think that's one of the brilliant pieces of this game is that there there is this, you know, noise of information that's up to you know, the players to figure it out. How do you feel about Metal Gear Solid 2 as part of the broader uh, Metal Gear Solid, I guess, lore? I, I don't know how well-versed you are. Like, for example, in Metal Gear... Sorry, spoilers for Metal Gear Solid 3 and 4, whatever. Don't care at this point. Like, obviously, what we learn... It's like the most important game, right? Well, what we learn later uh, in the later games, I can't remember if it's 3 or 4, but we learn that there's basically... There's the boss and then there's Big Boss, right? So you've yeah. got Big Boss who's trying to continue the boss's legacy in one way and then you've got Major Zero, Zero who's trying yep. to do it in another. Big Boss is trying to do realize this dream of soldiers being able to, you know, fight for what they choose in one way and Major Zero is trying to do it by creating AI as a way to essentially... Unify the world, right? Well, unify the world or divide the world, depending on... <laughs> uh, d divide the world along lines that are not nationalistic. Whereas uh, Big Boss is doing it by trying to create private military corporations as the, as the mechanism by which people fight. Instead of joining armies belonging to nations, people can basically pick and choose the, you know, corporate soldier army that they want to serve and choose one that aligns with their values ideals and join it whereas uh zero is a lot more interested in creating a mega ai that will regulate everything behind the shadows which ends up orchestrating you know the current state of affairs that you see in metal gear solid 4 so knowing all that does that change your perspective of metal gear solid 2 in any way or do you think that it's just the story stands on its own right and isn't really affected by the later games in the series. Honestly, I always found this idea of the characters trying to carry on the boss's will a bit shaky at best, um, and what that will was necessarily as like a single piece or like a two-part series, like playing the first two games. I think that narratively, this is probably the strongest point in the series. Um, three is a good game. Um, but I think the story it tries to tell is much more straightforward by more comparison. Modest. Yeah, it is. Um, which is fine, but I think that this is by far the most interesting game narratively in the series. Yeah, see, I, I pr still prefer the story of Metal Gear Solid 3, um, but you can't deny the audacity of the story of Metal Gear Solid 2. Like, Metal Gear Solid 2 really swings for the fences right yeah i guess three i kind of see like on this as being a bit too it's like Unnamed. one it's a bit straightforward yeah um i guess but i honestly i don't remember it super well other than like uh 
there's this guy who wants to launch a nuke and we have to stop him. <laughs> and he has electric powers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love the boss roster of Mogus Solid 3. It is great. Um, when are we doing Mogus Solid 3, James? I don't know, whenever you pick it. <laughs> um, have you got more notes on the uh, story, James? Uh, no, I do not. Pretty, We're pretty close to the end, right? Should we give final impressions? I think so. I mean, I think that, as you said, we can dive deeper into these things, like things like the concept of free will, but we've touched on most of it already, I think. Alrighty, Patrick, what did you think of Metal Gear Solid 2? Um, I think Metal Gear Solid 2 is a fantastic game. Uh, this is what I wanted from Metal Gear Solid 1, I think. When I was playing that game, the gameplay of Metal Gear Solid 2 is kind of what I had in my head as to what it would be like. In that I knew that there would be crazy, wacky stories, there'd be a lot of cutscenes, but what I wanted from Metal Gear Solid 1 was a robust, mechanical, stealth foundation that was distinct from that of Splinter Cell or Thief or any other stealth or Hitman, any other stealth game we've played. And Metal Gear Solid 2 delivered in spades. I also think that when it comes to the story, that the story was really well executed and it only becomes better upon getting to the end stages of the game because all that stuff which seems derivative and repetitive is actually very deliberately so and deliberately constructed and has meaning behind it. The areas where I think this game is a bit weaker, particularly in comparison to the first, is that I think that the enemy boss roster, uh, both in terms of gameplay and and story and how good their characters are, is weaker. There is the brilliant Fat Man fight, which I think is better than anything in Metal Gear Solid 1, but the boss fights here really take a dive for the worse. I think the emotive stuff is better in ways and worse in some ways, you know, I think the stuff with Stillman and Fatman is great. And I think the stuff with Emma Emmerich is garbage and I hate her uh, deeply. And uh, it'd be better if I, I really liked the bit where she got stabbed. Edge. <laughs> I mean, it's appropriate, right? It's Vamp's the one who did it. Uh. I think that overall, Metal Gear Solid 2 is clearly a better game than the first. I think it's filled with interesting ideas. They don't all hit. They don't all make perfect sense. But... They make enough sense and it's perfect that a game and a series that is so wrapped up in conspiracies this is the ultimate conspiracy of conspiracy games because it's conspiracies wrapped in conspiracies it takes the twists and turns of the first game and kicks it up to a ridiculous level so i don't think this game is perfect uh but i think it's very very good and it's made me wonder if metal gear solid 3 is even better than that, that this game and that was one of my you know one of my favorite games of the time so i'm very impressed and very happy that we chose to play this game james i i loved it um and i i can't wait to play more well i also think the metal gear solid 2 is a fantastic game there are some points that i actually think that it uh there are a few areas in which I actually think it regresses from the first game. Namely, I think the visual direction is substantially worse. We go from this kind of like nighttime moody infiltration of the Shadow Moses base to, you know, a, a game that doesn't have the same kind of atmosphere and isn't backed up by as strong a soundtrack. Uh, I think the codec call interface, for example, looks substantially worse than Metal Gear Solid 1's with mm -hmm. the UI elements being noticeably cheaper, like just the individual elements, like the light-up bars looking substantially worse in 2. And I think 
at the time the 3D models would have been like really cool, but now they just haven't aged as well as like the 2D animated portraits. That said, I do think that the gameplay is a substantial, substantial step up, and there is a lot more of it here. Um, there is heaps of great gameplay in the first half of the game, but it is unfortunately marred by some weaker sections in the third quarter with a lot of tedious underwater sections. However, the story is by far, in my opinion, the best in the series here. This is one of like my favorite video game stories of all times. I think that the, you know, the narrative commentary at the end of the game is like shockingly relevant today. Uh, it is really awesome and it like recontextualizes the entire game. They've really built up a very fantastic narrative here and the way it's presented and executed is just excellent. As Patrick said, the boss fights are pretty mediocre for the most part as well, but you know, they're not so bad that it drags the entire game down. So ultimately I think Metal Gear Solid 2 is an extremely good game and that you should absolutely play it. Although it's not, I don't think it's, you know, strictly better than the first in every sense. I see what you mean, particularly in the area where I think I agree with you the most is the aesthetics. Yeah. Uh, I do think that the game runs beautifully. Like, oh, it does. It, it runs yeah. at 60 frames per second, but just in general, it just seems it to feels be... smooth. It feels smoother than any other PS2 game I've ever played, and it's not close. Things like, like when, when you do rolls and you hold the button down and he transitions perfectly into prone, like, out of the roll, like, all of that, it feels like butter. Like, yeah, honestly. the animations, and, but I don't exactly know what it is, but... From the moment you go on the tanker, I was just like in shock at how smooth everything seemed to be running. So I don't know if it's some weird voodoo optimization or maybe PS2 games generally ran on 30 frames per second or something like that. Because I, I, I've never played a game that looks this smooth. In general though, yeah, Big Shell is kind of a sterile environment, right? Like yeah. it's kind of like just a bunch of walkways and perfectly clean kind of bland looking rooms um shadow moses had a lot so of I'm just, personality i'm just looking it, sure. it up um and i and i noticed this the first time i played metal gear solid 2 so metal gear solid 2 runs at 60 um yep. 3 actually runs at 30 so they actually yeah. re regress in that the makes next sense game. to me actually because yeah. uh, playing metal gear solid 3 i it never felt this smooth i mean metal gear solid 3 is having to render a lot more complicated outdoor environments um whereas whereas big shell is kind of bland but the gameplay experience of playing 2 at 60 fps is just so pleasant that said the later releases of 3 bump it back up to 60 so if you Ooh. play it today you're probably going to have you know a good experience and well, it's not going to matter too much well james we didn't really intend this but the um the remakes are coming out like as this episode is being released basically yeah 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 what so yeah, timing i know we we totally yeah, intended this we definitely 100 didn't plan it yeah so yeah i i think that aesthetically i definitely agree with you james although i still don't think metal gear solid one looks good i think you're crazy for thinking that but i, 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 I get it. what you mean in terms of atmosphere for sure metal gear solid 2 is kind of boring although i think the tanker is a, is pretty atmospheric when the rain's coming down it looks yeah great. it is they uh they have the um the ability to do that they just chose not to unfortunately <laughs> well maybe it was because i wanted to, the game to run at 60 fps which i can get behind yeah, I can as well. It's it feels pretty fucking good. <laughs> All right. Any more notes, James, or 
ready to wrap this up. Yeah, let's let's wrap up. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Retrospectors podcast as we discuss Metal Gear Solid 2. My name is Patrick Arthur and my co-host is James Turlings. You can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. It's got links to all 112 of our episodes as well as a bunch of articles that James and I have written. Most importantly, it has a link to our Discord server. That, that's where we do all of our community interaction. We take game recommendations. You can share your thoughts on the episode. So we strongly encourage you to drop by there and and uh, say hi, recommend us a game, whatever you want to do. As a final note, if you've been enjoying the show and wish to support us monetarily, we have a Buy Me A Coffee page and we have options for one-off donations or repeating donations, whatever floats your boat. So with Metal Gear Solid 2 well and truly done, I'm glad we did it, James. Uh, it's time for you to choose a game for us to play. What are we doing over the next three weeks? I, I actually don't know what we're doing. You haven't even hinted at it. Uh, I actually am feeling, this is quite odd, I'm actually feeling like playing a first-person shooter for the longest time. What? Like, yeah, normally um, Patrick would pick so many in the show that I never like felt the need, but it's been a while, um, and I'm actually feeling like going back and doing an older kind of shooter, so... I had a look at one of the ones we hadn't covered, and from all of the older, you know, retro shooters that we haven't touched yet, I think Blood stood out as being the most interesting, one of the build engine games. We haven't done one of those in the show, although I know Patrick is very familiar with these. Um, you've played Blood before, correct? I have. Uh, I was talking to some of our Discord users uh, a year or so ago, and someone's. this is one of the ones I haven't played. So I've played a lot of duke nukem 3d growing up that was my build engine game of choice but i only played blood uh for the first time about a year ago and i thought it was excellent like i really enjoyed my time with it so much so that uh i'm very very excited to play this for the show because I, the game kicked my ass quite frankly like i really struggled with it but i enjoyed the process of learning to get better so now I feel I can go back to it on a higher difficulty, um, doing my whole only one save per mission thing, and see if it can really, uh, really destroy me. Because I do think these build engine games do present a unique boomer shooter experience that is distinct from the 3D games that came in their wake. Uh, so yeah, I'm very excited to talk about it and talk about it for the show. I did cover, I will, I will give a shout out to Retro Hangover Podcast. I did go and play duke nukem 3d for their their show not too long ago probably about six months ago uh so yeah now once we play blood it's only shadow warrior remaining and then we've done the big three. Oh, you have at least oh, i have yeah that's true <laughs> enough yeah so thank you james for picking this i'm uh, i'm very very keen to give this a try and talk about it because uh it's a it's an interesting fps far more interesting than you might think well, I'll be uh, playing this game on like the base difficulty because uh, <laughs> I hear it's quite difficult. But um, yeah, pretty interested to check this one out and uh, satisfy this, uh, you know, urge this to murder people. Urge to murder persons. people that only comes up every few years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you in a few weeks for blood. See you then. Bye.